0: Alternative kinds of housing like shipping containers or tiny houses are quickly getting more popular. Could they help relieve some of the pressure from the affordable housing crunch? This is Florida Matters. From the Donna Studio at WUSF Public Media, I'm Robin Sussingham. WUSF's special report, Growing Unaffordable, has been looking at people here in Hillsborough County who are finding it harder and harder to find a home they can afford. One of the questions that we wanna look at today is, how do we think outside of that big box? What about tiny houses or RVs or container homes? Here in the studio with us is Elizabeth Strom, Associate Professor at USF School of Public Affairs. Hi, Elizabeth. Hello. Mickey Jacob is an architect with BDG Architects and chairman of the Tampa Downtown Partnership. Welcome, Mickey. Thank you, Robin. And Robert Cox is CEO of Sundog Structures, a maker of shipping container structures. Hi, Robert. Hello, Robin. So, Robert, you make houses out of shipping containers, and not everybody is familiar with what what that means. What that is, can you describe it?
1: Sure. So, we take shipping containers that have been in service. We typically use single-use containers so that we're not using old, beat-up containers.
0: So, a shipping container is actually like a a metal box, uh, no windows or anything on it. When you start out, how big is it normally? That's
1: right. We use 40-foot shipping containers that are 8 feet wide, and we use the high-cube containers that are 9 foot 6 high. And so these are containers that are built overseas and filled with televisions and destined for the uh, local stores, and, and they take those containers, ship them to us. We kind of have uh, that them allocated to us prior to their delivery. And then we have a team of uh, welders and, and uh, carpenters who – take the containers apart in many ways they cut out walls they cut out windows and doors and those kinds of openings and then we put them back together on site so they we allow them to be transported down the road with their normal size but when we get them to site then we weld them all together on site and add the roofs and and that kind of thing cladding
0: Are they new containers, or do you get them, have they, I think one of the attractions to this, in the beginning at least, was that it was sustainable. You were using things that were already built or had already been used.
1: We get about 800,000 new containers into the U.S. every year, and that somewhat represents our trade deficit. And um, we use single-use containers so we can control what was shipped in them, and we have an understanding of who made them, when they were made, what the quality assurance program was during their construction so that they can be engaged in the construction requirements for shipping containers that a lot of states and and, um, municipalities have adopted.
0: Okay, and Elizabeth Strom, you, in your work, I know you've looked a lot at um, urban planning and the arts and how that all relates. So when the arts and culture become more developed in an urban core, then the downtown of a city becomes more desirable, right? And then it becomes more expensive. So how do you see people like artists um, coping with that kind of a tension?
2: Well, I think you raise a really interesting point. when areas become more attractive, that's wonderful. People want to be there. Uh, But it also means that inevitably land costs go up and so you have issues of affordability. And usually what happens is that as areas become more attractive, then people who who had lived there previously get pushed out into other areas. And so I think it's very important when we think about urban planning issues and think about places like the downtown to figure out how we're going to have some diversity of population of people who can live there, whether they're artists or just people who, whose incomes aren't great, that we don't want to have uh, either ghettos of very poor people or areas that are exclusively for the very wealthy.
0: I know, Mickey, Jacob, this is something that you think about in your role as the chairman of the Tampa Downtown Partnership. Tampa Downtown Partnership is working hard to make downtown Tampa more vibrant, but then there's a tension between uh, development and inexpensive housing.
3: Well, there's attention, tension, uh, and also with the zoning uh, requirements and the code requirements, too. Um, what we're seeing right now is a push towards smaller units, so micro-unit apartments. We, we actually, my role as a Tampa Downtown Partnership, we're looking at it from a philosophical standpoint and a planning standpoint, but my role at my firm is actually we're just doing a couple projects right now that are micro-unit projects in downtown. One of them got killed by the city because of the parking requirements. So... One of the challenges we have is that what you see is a unit that's 500 square feet to 600 square feet is a very livable unit. We can design those, and they're comfortable, they're efficient, and they're affordable, especially for young people, whether it's artists, whether it's service industry individuals, whether it's a young person I hire right out of architecture school here at USF, um, looking for ways that they can live close to where they can work, where they can walk, and where the streetscape becomes their living room.
0: So, describe what a micro unit is. Is it a studio apartment, what we would have normally called a studio apartment? Is it a condo or is it a rental unit? What is it?
3: Uh, Most of my rental units. Um, they're about, like I said, 500 to 600 square feet. They're very efficiently designed. What you're seeing is um, units that, that have components in it that actually fold up and become two different things. So, um, you can fold up a Murphy bed, but you can pull the bottom of the Murphy bed out, and it becomes either your sofa or your dining room table. Uh, the storage is integral to it. So, it's all space-saving capacity items that make it very uh, flexible to live in. And also the idea is that it, it's, it's comfortable and it's spacious in terms of its volume and not so much in the square footage of it. So we look at how the volume, how the height of the space works and how much light we can get into the space that gives it that uh, greater comfort level.
0: I could definitely see that appealing to someone young, just out of college, no pets, no children maybe, and, and hasn't accumulated a lot of stuff. It could work.
3: Oh, it works wonderfully, and we're seeing a variety of different people. Uh, We were looking at uh, repurposing a a fairly abandoned downtown office building, uh, 12 stories, and we uh, really redesigned it to accommodate all micro units. And the the first reservations online were extraordinary. It was 80 percent reserved within a week uh, with a down payment, a small down payment. And the, the the idea of this is what we're seeing is people really want to live where they work. And accommodating that, people will give up space in order to have that experience of being in a downtown environment that has all the amenities that fit their lifestyle.
0: So you said it was killed because you didn't have parking for we the didn't tenants? Have par-
3: well, yeah, the building didn't have parking. And the parking requirements of the city of Tampa and downtown for a residential unit of that type is one parking space per unit. You well, right, have well, 100, 120 units. That's 120 parking spaces. And when you don't have any parking for the building, um, you still have a you still have to meet the requirement. So
0: I want to get into uh, later in the show some hindrances that cities sure. might put up to to these kinds of out of the box thinking on on things. But Robert, what about your structures? What about the container structures? How affordable are they and where can you where can you build them how are you working with zoning regulations
1: Sure so <clears throat> we haven't found a lot of uh, pushback from being able to build in any locations we find the the uh, cities and municipalities to be pretty receptive at this stage we're struggling a little bit to try to get a uh, modular certification at the state level because of the steel not being performed or produced in an ANSI uh, American steel manufacturers uh, set up. So that's one of the challenges for us. But um, the uh, I think that it's kind of catching on to the point that cities are starting to embrace it. A few years ago, that was a little bit of a different story, but it's starting to really kind of catch on. What Mickey was saying about uh, smaller units, we're finding to be a, kind of a, a really key for us as well. We're trying to build smaller units, but when you when you do that, you have to kind of compress everything that's already in a, in a bigger apartment or, or dwelling that has to all fit into 640 square feet or something like that for our, our needs. We, we tend to say that we're about $15 a square foot less than traditional construction and it can go up and down based on finishes, but when you're building really small, you're having the, the cost per square foot that people are used to analyzing uh, the real estate value by just kind of goes up and uh, very quickly in very small units.
0: All right. So I'm trying to get a handle on whether it's affordable or not. I mean, shipping containers are popular now because I think people love the way they look. They love that modern design, the feel of it. It's something new. Um, but is it feasible? Is it, is it affordable or is it not?
1: Yeah, $15 a square foot less may or may not be a tipping point for someone. Um, We do have the ability to really kind of um, minimize the finishes and even allow people to do more of the work themselves, which is something that we're looking at um, some different versions. But um, it is is more affordable than, than traditional construction. We're looking at ways that we can take the idea of the shipping container and its mobility and try to make that into a steel-framed unit that we can use for infill for some of these more affordable types of products.
0: I would think that in a place like Tampa, there would be opportunities for infill. Mm. Um, Elizabeth, you had said at one point, I was watching an interview, and you'd said from a bird's-eye view, um, Tampa was just filled with, you said, dominated by parking lots could that help with some of the things that Robert's talking about with infill housing, with places to put alternative structures like a tiny house or um, a container? Would that help?
2: Absolutely. I think the idea that Tampa's built out is simply not true. Now, I think I recall the interview you're talking about, and I was revisiting it because it was about 10 years ago pre-Riverwalk, pre-everything. So Tampa has, the downtown has filled in a lot since then. But I think if you look at the downtown itself, especially the area not around the river, but in the center, I'm sure Mickey's aware of this as well, um, as well as some of the areas just outside of it, we have a ton of space where we could do denser housing. Um, And so I think the opportunities are absolutely there. You know, Whether sort of a tiny home kind of development would be ideal there, I might push back on that a little bit because the whole point of downtowns is to be dense. And so most planners and architects would suggest that your urban core shouldn't have single family homes. It's a bad use of the land economically. And even philosophically, we want the density to get people who go to restaurants and things like that. And so if you have just a few units on a, on a site, you're not going to get that. Right. But, but there's definitely place, space.
0: And, well, maybe in a neighborhood like Temple Terrace or, or Seminole Heights or somewhere not in the downtown urban core of the city.
2: Absolutely. And I think one of the sweet spots, I think, for something like the container homes would, be as accessory dwelling units in a place like Seminole Heights, because I think um, there are now, uh, talking about ordinances, that there's now more flexibility in many places to, if you have a home in a certain size lot, you can put a second unit there, and I would imagine that something like um, a, a, a shipping container unit would work perfectly, and then you're not taking a spot, let's say, on a main transit corridor and putting three units there when you could have put 30. So that's, I think, kind of a sweet spot for that kind of technology. So that's possible now. In Tampa, in Hillsborough County, you could put a
0: shipping container home on your in your yard?
1: Yes. Uh, Seminole Heights is kind of ahead of the curve. I know that the city of Tampa is looking at the success that they had there and expanding it into other areas of the city, but um, it does take time for that to happen. It took, I think, three years for them to be able to get Seminole Heights to be online with uh, the accessory dwelling approach.
0: Are people doing it?
1: absolutely
3: they're doing it all over the country my son just got married in a container facility in las vegas Um, it's it's interesting to see the dynamics but i think robert and elizabeth are both onto it urban density is the key to solving this problem and disruptive technology and construction is the other key to solving it we can't solve the affordability problem using typical construction techniques like we do now we have to look at pre-manufactured component parts even within framework of uh, typical construction that we have in order to make these numbers work. You know, when you look at the statistics in Hillsborough County, and uh, there's a very high percentage of people that are paying over 30 percent of their income on their housing requirements, and some people paying as much as 50 percent of their income, which just makes it, you know, uh, financially a burden that they can never get out of. So what we need to do is look at what's that magic number that we need to get the construction costs down to so we can bring it to market effectively. We've found that the micro-units and what they're calling macro-units now, which some people would liken to a typical dormitory type of situation where you actually rent a bedroom and a bathroom and you share a common space that has a kitchen and a living area in it with three or four other people. That's the other new marketplace uh, scenario we're seeing that really, again, brings that number down. So somebody that's making a wage that's a lower end wage, an entry level position can afford to live again in an, in an entity where it's close to where they, they work.
0: That's interesting because that's what the colleges are doing now. Uh, Off-campus housing now, the new new apartments that they're doing is they're renting out the rooms. You know, they share a living room and a kitchen, tiny, tiny living room, tiny kitchen, and then they might have four bedrooms, and you just pay. So you don't have one parent that's responsible for getting the money from all the other kids, they all pay separately. And that kind of sounds like what you're talking about.
3: It is. And it's actually uh, very successful in other markets in terms of outside of the college campus and and using it in an environment, in a a workplace environment. and, and it makes a lot of sense, to be honest with you. I think there's a socialization aspect of it that's completely different than your normal apartment living. And that's a key to successful cities. We want to create in our new designs and trying to be as disruptive as possible within the boundaries we can work in to create these new social collisions that normally don't happen, which really makes a city vibrant. That's where people gather. They congregate. They they. Uh, do things together. They enjoy the aspects of the city. Those are the kinds of environments that, you know, we're really looking at how do we create new living examples that that can hopefully push that forward.
0: So, Elizabeth, um, Another thing that people might want to go back to, I mean, everyone disparages this idea of a grown child living in your basement. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> you know, setting aside that we don't have basements in Florida, you know, why not have families, different generations living together and pitching in on the rent or pitching in on the mortgage? Why is that a, something that we disparage? Is it just a cultural no-no for Americans?
2: Well, I think it depends on the culture because I think there are certainly many cultures within the United States where it's much more typical for adult children to live with their families. But I think having housing um, that allows for that. So so I don't want a child in my basement, but I sure wouldn't mind having a two-family house where my adult child was in the upstairs apartment. And so I think accessory dwelling units are a great place, or the point, the time will come where I get kicked into the accessory dwelling unit and my adult child is the one in the main house. But I think um, that, you know, part of the problem we've seen in a place like Tampa and many parts of the U.S. is very cookie-cutter development that is driven by um, by suburban-style developers who have kind of a, a single product that they're trying to sell to all of us. So I think anytime we can look at different ways to build housing to accommodate a lot of different needs and incomes, then, then that's a direction we want to go in.
0: I wanted to go back, Robert, to um, the idea of mobility for these um, container structures because HGTV has a show about tiny houses, and they some of those you can move around. They're like very nice RVs. Well, if they're not like RVs. You're not driving them. I guess you're, you're pulling them. What about container structures? Any way to make those uh, mobile?
1: We've looked at that. Um, our typical buildings are attached to a permanent foundation, and it's a little more complicated. The tiny homes are on wheels as a rule. Uh, they have uh, kind of self-contained plumbing, and they plug in their electrical needs to, uh, to like a, a larger 50-amp circuit or something like that, typical of what an RV situation would be. We have looked at uh, producing a, a relocatable unit for like Hertz, where they want to have a three- to five-year lease, and they're at one parking lot one year, and then they pick the whole thing up. So we have foundation systems that we're integrating that are able to be relocated. But um, as a rule, this is a permanent type of installation.
0: And what do you do? You um, what do you do about electric and plumbing and all that? You just like a regular house, you just have to get go through city water and everything.
1: Yes. uh huh. Yep. That's that's our approach. Um, We are looking at ways to um, make things happen a little more rapidly upon deployment. And we are looking at projects that are up to eighty, one hundred unit apartment buildings. So we're starting to really stretch more in the design side right now. Some of the larger projects we're doing are, you know, up to five, seven thousand square feet at this stage. But we're seeing the horizon is is showing us a lot of ways that we can approach multifamily development, and a lot of developers that are really seeing the uh, ability to do prefab as one of their solutions for being able to get more units on the ground and and help to drive down the costs.
0: How much would it cost to get your least expensive home?
1: Um, it's less than a hundred thousand dollars for something of an, a six hundred forty square foot uh, unit. So um, it's it's not unaffordable. Uh, we wish we could push that down a little bit more. we're We're doing everything we can, and we understand that, that there really aren't a lot of people who are serving a market that is a hundred fifty thousand dollar or less kind of unit, and there's a there's a large opportunity in that market.
0: Mm-hmm. Mickey, Jacob, um, you talked about disruptive construction and um, finding new ways. To build these homes, tell me a few things that you're talking about.
3: Well, I think with what Robert's doing is a perfect example of it. It's a it's a technology that can be controlled in the construction process, which helps control costs. So when you manufacture it in manufacture in controlled conditions, um, you get a higher quality product. It's better workmanship, and you're not subject to conditions that you see on a typical job site: rain, wind. Time, all those things that that affect the quality of a project. Being able to bring it on the site and being able to be flexible enough that it gives you the opportunity to expand on the project. So you can start out at, at one particular size, but the beauty of what container technology is doing right now is it allows you to expand on that exponentially as much as you want. And that's part of the design process, which I find, Very exciting that you can really – it's so flexible in its ability to do that. So that's where I start to see the cost savings coming into place as we continue to go further and be able to control those costs that they have in the manufacturing process. That's going to drive those costs down just as we see with any product as uh, as it develops.
0: Well, it sounds like branding is kind of an important part of this because it sounds like what you're talking about, Mickey, is prefab. Uh, Prefabricated housing, which is less, you you said you can have quality control, it's less expensive, but people kind of maybe turned up their noses at prefab housing, um, but not at container structures. That's like the cool new way to do it.
3: You, you know, we've just uh, – if you look at Sparkman's Wharf, um, what they've just done with containers um, and opening that as a, as a retail and a, and, a, and a hospitality place and the success of that. And I think when you look forward as to how we can evolve the whole thing, um, that's what's exciting to me. And, and, and I think Elizabeth touched on the cultural aspect that we have in a community of what our cultural vision is or what a house is. And that's not necessarily the case. That's, that's a cultural uh, um, thing that we think about what typically what we see at home and, you know, suburban subdivisions is what our culture tends to look at it. Unfortunately, it's a 1950s solution to a 2018 problem so looking at this new disruption in technology new disruption in construction techniques and high-rise that we can start to implement in which are are much more streamlined and then be able to take the controlled environment of the interior space and plug that in as we design it is really exciting new uh, ground that we can explore
0: let me ask you all something what about mobile home parks i mean that's a community Mm -hmm um why wouldn't young people they could get a mobile home for a lot less than a container structure right i mean why aren't we seeing young people maybe moving into a mobile home park are
2: they all 55 and up they're not no there there are still some but um i mean i'm curious what the others say because i that is um <clears throat> excuse me, that, that is, you know, part of my reaction is that it is sort of rebranding. I mean, um, tiny homes, when Levittown was created, they built mm-hmm. 700 square foot homes. They weren't built off site, but they were built through such an automated process that it brought down the cost of housing. And yet no one goes to Levittown, New York, and says, you know, we've seen the future and here it is. And so some of it is a matter of branding a certain aesthetic. Um, but in general, we have to say that that um, mobile homes have not been very well constructed, um, that many Many of the parks now that are geared toward a general population that are not 55 and up are in terrible shape. Um, They're not at all hurricane-resistant or well-insulated. But in a way, you could say that that tiny homes of of any kind, but certainly those produced off-site, can replicate the affordability of some of those places and perhaps then address some of the disadvantages of the quality of the construction. Right. People want to live in a place that looks good, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, what we found is that there are a lot of people who are looking at uh, former mobile home parks and rebranding them with the container uh, structures in mind. And that's that's encouraging for us. I understand that there's very limited numbers of new uh, permits being issued for new mobile home parks. So they have to kind of uh, maintain the ones that are in, in place. The stock of buildings that are in those mobile home parks are much of them are very old. You know, constructed in the seventies, and and uh, there are new units that are still being produced. But the permits for new mobile home parks, I think, are really on the decline.
0: Mickey, you hear a lot in in the um, conversation about um, affordable housing. You hear a lot about the role of government and the city. And um, planners. What about an architect? What's an architect's role in looking at affordable housing?
3: Oh, our role is to to take a look at all the aspects that um, really drive what it is, and solve it through design. Um, I think one of the the, the challenges of affordability is location. I, mean, I can we can build a container home out. North of the city, but it doesn't solve the affordability problem of a commute to downtown and having to have a car and gasoline and all of that. So, the density issue in terms of our urban planning on trying to look at how do we increase density zoning around our employment basis so we can have affordable attainable housing for people who work there so they don't have to own a car. So as soon as you take a car out of play in our culture, you're making it much more affordable to live. And quite frankly, you can also put a little more money into your living uh, uh, um, house or your uh, apartment as well. So we're really looking at ways of how do we create our transit plan in order to support that? How do we include uh, bicycling and pedestrian environments that support that? And how do we have the kinds of retail and support services close by as well within that zoning in order to support it? It's great if you could just walk down the street on the way home and pick up a couple things at a small grocery store or a boulangerie or whatever it is to cook at home. I mean, it's, it's somewhat of a European model and it's a culture we haven't really embraced here in this country uh, in the last 50 years, but it's coming at us because in order for us to survive and compete as a city, we're going to have to do that.
0: Well, and what you're saying, I mean, won't the market kind of take care of some of this? Because um, we had a report, Kathy Carter, in her, in one of her stories, says that 28,000 people are moving into Hillsborough every year, the size of Temple Terrace. But if it becomes too expensive for those 28,000 people to find homes, they will go to a more afford- affordable place. They'll go to Pasco or Polk or somewhere else, and then perhaps they will demand better transportation to get to their job in downtown Tampa. We just <coughs> saw a full sales tax go into effect to improve transportation, so maybe, you know, this is one way that'll get taken care of.
2: Well, I, I've, um, I think that's a really interesting question, and, and I appreciate uh, Mickey raising that because, um, in fact, now there are new... Uh, databases we use to look at affordability that look at housing and transportation costs together, because it's a completely different picture if you put those together. Um, I read that AAA estimates it costs about $8,000 a year to maintain a car. And of course, it can be a lot higher if you're driving a lot. And, um, and so if you imagine having being able to take away a car, then affordability looks quite different. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think to say that the market will take care of it, I'm not sure I believe that because the market has not taken care of it at all. The market goes like water, goes to you know where there's the least resistance. And so the market will build more housing out in Citrus County, uh, but it won't necessarily respond to the need for public services like transit. So I'm very optimistic about the what will happen with the new tax, and I think we need to be smart about building housing where that transit is going. Okay.
0: Um, one thing we were talking about was in Seminole Heights, they've changed the zoning laws so that now you can put a container structure. Mm-hmm. Um, in your yard, but what are some of the zoning regulations in downtown Tampa, say, that are hindering this kind of I, of um, building that would help relieve some of this housing problem? And I think the parking situation sounds like one thing.
3: It's parking, okay. mm-hmm. and it's parking, and then it's parking. Um, I think, uh, but, but interestingly enough, um, this past Thursday, City Council uh, uh, looked at a new uh, text amendment to the parking code that uh, a unit that's 580 square feet or less would now only have to have 0.5 parking spaces per unit rather than one parking space per unit. That's a 50% reduction. That just made a lot of our projects much more affordable to build. And also, and, and quite frankly, it's also a marketplace condition as we're seeing people really aren't wanting cars on the level they wanted them before as long as we provide the transportation alternatives well, to, goes, to make it work. It it's, should it, go it,
0: hand in hand with improving the transportation then. You should it, be able to lower the density of the cars.
3: And that's our challenge as architects. It's our challenge as community leaders to make sure we're at the forefront. I think your comment about is the marketplace take care of it? Well, that one cent sales tax that went into, a fa- into effect was our community saying we've had enough, do something. And, and we got something done we haven't been able to get done in a very long time in this community. So I think what you're starting to see is people are fed up enough with these challenges that they want to see action and they're willing to do the kinds of things necessary for us to be
1: daring enough to take that action. One of the challenges I've seen is that uh, Tampa has seven-foot setbacks on their properties and, and that um, kind of squeezes a lot of the existing homes that are the homes that you would propose for a site out of the uh, ability to put it on the uh, site and there's also an issue of non-conforming lots the the size of the lots in most areas need to be about 50 by 100 uh, feet uh, 50 foot wide and 100 feet deep to uh, be considered a conforming lot and you have to get a variance to uh, allow that to happen um, so that's that's a challenge as well um but one of the things that i I think is the biggest fundamental challenge and and it all is that um the comps in real estate tend to tend to suppress home values in certain areas. So, if you're trying to build something new in an area that is uh, in you know needing renovation or is you know an upcoming neighborhood, you're only going to be able to step that value up incrementally. So um, and that's true for small houses. There's not really a lot of comps out there for 640 square foot or 960 square foot houses. So um, that's that's one of the other challenges is, you know, this used to be the upward mobility uh, machine is to be able to build homes and and kind of levitate your your financial net worth. And with, uh, you know, kind of looking at comps being the driver for the value of, of a new unit, it really kind of tends to suppress the values and makes a lot of projects not feasible.
0: What about financing, Robert? Is there a problem? Do people have a problem financing, um, a structure, a container structure? And, and what about something like a micro condo, say? I mean, how, what do banks think about trying to get financing for something like that?
1: Yes. um, again, that's one of those things that we're starting to move the, uh, move the ball a little bit on. Um, we have now four banks that are lending for our homes, so it's uh, it's starting to happen. It's not the big banks, it's more of the local banks that are, are willing to take the plunge, but um, that, that continues to be a bit of a challenge is to find uh, the larger banks embracing uh, our you know kind of new technology and, and uh, modular technology as well.
0: What would you like to see let's say the city of Tampa what would you like to see the city of Tampa do to encourage some of these alternative um, housing projects Elizabeth and then I want to hear from you Mickey
2: um, well I, I think looking over regulations to make sure that they're all really necessary whether that's about parking uh, about setbacks about size of apartments um, but but I also I'm going to answer this in a way that is not all the way you asked it because I feel it's important as much as I think um, the market and new technologies can help us with affordability. Um, We need public subsidies. I mean, if you think about somebody who's earning $10 or $15 uh, an hour, there is no way, no matter how we tweak the size of the apartment, we are not going to provide housing for that person. And so we can't really have this conversation without acknowledging the role of the public sector to help those who can't afford uh, market rate housing. And I would just note that the state of Florida has a marvelous mechanism for doing this, the Sadowski Housing Trust Fund. Um, And since 2002, the legislature has swept that money almost on an annual basis so Mm -hmm. that we're now $2.2 billion in the hole on on state funding. And And so I just feel like that needs to be part of the picture too. We we have really gone into
0: depth on on that issue in our week-long series called Growing Unaffordable. I would send everybody interested to our website, WUSFnews.org. You will find... um, very, very in-depth articles about that very issue, Elizabeth. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Mickey, what about what can cities do um, to help with this problem and help more creative solutions to find housing that's not so expensive?
3: Well, one of the things I think is, is uh, taking risk, especially on the parking side. Uh, we've seen a couple of cities within their urban core actually have no parking requirements, that the parking requirement is really a risk that the developer takes on doing it, and they've all been hugely successful. Uh, That's incumbent on us as a community then to make sure the support is in there with transit alternatives uh, to make that lifestyle uh, work. But the other thing too, I think we need to look at new tax laws in order to provide people incentives to live that way. If you want to live downtown and you don't want to have a car, you should get a break on your, your homeowner's tax. You should get a break on taxes you pay to the city. You should be rewarded for things that you do that make your city a better place and make that quality of life better. So I think we as a community and leadership need to look at different, again, disruptive alternatives to these kinds of things to provide incentives for people that don't really cost the, the public entity much in terms of physical dollars but really new ways to look at how do we provide these incentives for people to live that way. If I'm not gonna have a car, is part of the rent you pay inclusive of a transit pass as long as you live there? Is it inclusive of you being able to use a zip car at 50% or you use the bike racks for free? All of these kinds of things are, are options that we can look at that help the quality of life because it's not the amount of square footage anymore that makes the quality of, of life. It's all the amenities that support where you live that bring the quality of life, which is what we look at from a design standpoint.
0: Are there any new technologies that you see coming online, Mickey, that can help with this whole problem of affordability?
3: So it's a smart environment now. In uh, artificial intelligence. So we're going to see uh, our building systems be able to control your entire environment from uh, the kinds of things we typically think about, what we listen to, uh, our security, but also comfort. And so the affordability will be in the fact that building systems will be so much more inexpensive to work because that system will be able to tell you what the right temperature is. It'll make you comfortable. Uh, It will be able to take sunlight out of the window so you don't get heat gain. It will be able to do all these things that will drive down the cost of operating. So beyond just rent, now it's the operational costs that we can lower because of new technology breakthroughs that are a big part of it. I am really excited about the opportunity this brings from just the design standpoint alone but also a living standpoint.
0: It does sound really exciting but I have to tell you it sounds like it would just make your house a lot more expensive if you had windows that automatically got darker when the sun came out. Are you talking about a multifamily unit that maybe the builder would, would pick up that cost?
3: It's all part of the, the cost process. We can we can design very effective houses with these new kinds of technologies in it. It's just making sure we're very thoughtful in the design process and how that's integrated into the cost. But what we're seeing now is as technology continues to evolve, these costs are going down mm-hmm. in terms of the ability of manufacturers to provide these products to the marketplace in a much more affordable manner.
0: And that's going to help, you think?
3: Absolutely. It's, I think it's the next step for us in the design industry to really look at helping to drive costs down for the maintenance and the operation of your home as well as you know, bringing that into the initial cost in terms of the installation of it.
0: That's Mickey Jacob, an architect with BDG Architects and chairman of the Tampa Downtown Partnership. We've also been speaking with Elizabeth Strom, an associate professor at the University of South Florida School of Public Affairs, and Robert Cox, the CEO of Sundog Structures. Thank you all so much for being here.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very
1: much.
0: You'll find our entire special report, Growing Unaffordable, on our website, WUSFnews.org. And Florida Matters is now available as a podcast. It's another great way to listen whenever is convenient for you. Search for it wherever you get your podcasts or find a link to subscribe by clicking on today's show at WUSFnews.org. Florida Matters is a production of WUSF Public Media. The engineer is George Govin. The producer is Stephanie Colombini. I'm Robin Sussingham. Thanks for listening.